that Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. This is the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast with your hosts, Michael Campbell and Greg Howell. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. We have got a pretty cool episode here this week. Uh, Just to kind of look at a couple of different details from the last few, if if you haven't listened to our previous podcast on uh, last generation theology, we definitely want to encourage you to do so. Had a little bit of discussion, kind of pulled in some folks there on social media, looking at it from a few different angles. So if you're interested in any of that kind of thing, do check out our last couple episodes. Um, but this week is a is a special episode for me because uh, I get to kind of highlight my co-host's effort, work, uh, drudgery in some cases. Going through old historical stuff is is a lot of effort, but he has produced an amazing an amazing book for us here. Uh, Michael's just put out his book, 1922. And what's really cool about this book is that it, it's kind of picking up right where his previous one left off, um, albeit about three years after the fact. His, his other book, 1919, if you haven't had a chance to check that one out, um, looks at that time period and the Bible conference and uh, the church that took place. So this this next jump three years ahead in 1922 uh, just kind of rolls right on through in this early, uh, I don't know, the first couple of decades of the 20th century. So, Michael, share with us a little bit today what, what were your thinking was as you were approaching this 1922 book? So thanks, Greg. Yeah, I, I'm really excited because I've always been interested in this broader Adventism and fundamentalism. But George Knight and my when I was doing my dissertation had encouraged me to focus and narrow down just on 1919. So that's my dissertation topic. And then, of course, I popularized that in my uh, recent book on 1919. But I've always had this uh, hunkering to want to go back and look at the broader narrative of what's happening with Adventism and fundamentalism through the rest of the 20s. So this is my first attempt to really kind of take that next step and explore uh, what happens kind of like the rest of the story, Greg. And <laughs> yep. the, Get a little that Paul episode, Harvey moment here. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's that's kind of what's happening. And the aftermath of 1919, what what happens next? And and this is not the end either. I'm already you know, I wasn't able to take all of the material from 22 and put it in my 22 book. So I'm going to have uh, yet another volume. So I may end up uh, most likely becoming a trilogy. So um, and I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, <laughs> all good things come in threes. We know that. I, I guess. Uh, so so uh, there's still so much more. And of course, we dabbled that with that a little bit with last generation theology. But 22 was exciting because uh, I just kind of poured through our church periodicals and publications after 1919. And there was just a bunch of stuff that I didn't realize was there by taking a little bit more time. You know, the statements mm-hmm. of of belief from 1919, 1920, I mean, almost really by the end of the year in 1919, you see these direct correlations between, um, and of course, correlations, not causation. But in this case, there clearly is a catalyst because Adventists are reading the fundamentalist statements of fundamental belief. And of course, they had their own before this, but they're directly engaging or interacting with these fundamentalist lists of belief. And then saying, hey, here's our list of fundamental beliefs. And and we agree with most of it, except for there's a few tweaks or whatever. And so yeah. when I saw that, I said, aha, aha, 
this is amazing. I've stumbled on something really significant that no one in Adventist historiography has ever written on before. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's honestly what made this book so exciting for me because I've always had the same sense that we've got pivotal stuff happening in the early 20s um, that we just have never really tapped into. But in reading Adventism, I've always felt like we've got an Adventism before fundamentalism and an Adventism after it. And they're not the same. It doesn't feel like the same uh, beliefs or at least it doesn't feel like the same emphases. You know, yeah, I've always felt that. And you've highlighted and figured out exactly what kind of course corrections and changes happen. So, um, yeah, let's just kind of kick it off. Yeah. Oh, no. Keep on going. Well, I was just going to say, you know, and there's some interpretive aspects to this as well, because people some people have tried to interpret this in different ways with this broader sense of what you're pointing out, Greg, of of fundamentalism. And and I think it's really important to define that term because a lot of people throw and banter that about. Um, some people use it in a pejorative sense, and, and I'm not meaning it in any way like that at all. I'm using it in a strictly historical sense. There's a historical fundamentalist movement in American religion, and Adventists are part and parcel of what's happening uh, within that wider cultural milieu. Yeah, and, and we're discovering it in a lot of ways, uh, along with, with the people that are, that are involved. I've always looked at the fundamentalist movement. I mean, obviously, Marsden and some other guys have their own views on what the term means. But I've always felt that it was a moment in time where everybody was deciding, what are we going to truly focus on? And what are we going to truly try to fight and defend for? Like, Mm -hmm. we've all had this Christian sense as Protestants in America. And yet now we're going to focus on the issues that we really think need to be defended. So that's that's always been kind of my sense of it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. so let's kind of kick it off here. Um, in reading through the book in the first few chapters, um, I, I, I noticed a great quote here that I thought I'd just throw out that I'd love to hear a little bit more exposition on. Uh, you mentioned in the first, eh, might have been the first two, might have even been the introduction. You said fundamentalism perpetuated a siege mentality. Mm-hmm. Uh, several historians noted how such a mindset was based on this foundationalist view of truth. The idea that all truth had to be black and white and therefore propositional. Um that that you said set up a kind of an idea here that there's a, a widening chasm between the conservative and liberal viewpoints because you needed to define truth from error so strongly, which itself, funny enough, is based on a modern sensibility. Even though the conservatives are saying we need to defend and, and highlight what is truth and what is error, the drive to defend truth and error in a black and white dichotomy is itself a modern way of thinking. Um, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, and this is, you know, some of the great historiography that's been going on by a number of historians and philosophers and theologians is that, yeah, there's this binary. It's a way of viewing the world. And so while you can define fundamentalism as a historical movement, there's also it's a it's an ethos. It's a it's a mindset. It's a way of thinking, uh, a worldview even and and very much as you as i mentioned in my book which you just uh, referenced uh this kind of binary this black and white way of thinking everything is um is very much in, in both sides the modernists and the fundamentalists are both engaging with modern sensibilities in a way through which they view the world that is distinctly modern and so you, you divide up the world by science and scientific thinking. You, um, 
you you categorize things you even this notion within Adventist theology of proof texting while there had always been a kind of a, a penchant for doing that it be it takes off in a whole new kind of way because you're kind of categorizing for example Ellen White's writings and and coming mm-hmm. up with lists of of proof texts through which you um, identify and hold up suppositions of truth. And so all of these things and the predilections as to why they're doing them are very much informed by modern assumptions. And, and so both, yes, the modernists and the fundamentalists, they're, they're taking two different ways of responding to this new world and to change, but still they themselves are the product of the world in which they live too. And so, yeah, this this is this is huge, I think, uh, for understanding um, our, our pioneers were people of their own time and place. It wasn't a tabla rasa a blank slate where they just walked in and said we mm. you know, they, they had their own environment and ways of thinking that were shaping their world in which they are interacting with and reacting to. And so, yeah, the fundamentalists are part of that kind of knee-jerk reaction in a way, like, hey, I'm, I'm not liking some of this change, <laughs> even as they're still very much utilizing uh, modern assumptions. And so, yeah, both sides are, are very right. much modern, mm-hmm. uh, whether they like to admit it or not. And it's easier for us, looking back after a century, to kind of see that, but it should give us pause for a little bit of humility for to ask ourselves mm-hmm. the same kinds of questions. You know, how are we influenced yeah. by their, our wider world and culture today? Yeah, yeah, and, and to me, that was the irony of it. Like, if this is truly uh, the debate, you know, was the fight was against modernism in so many um, fundamentalist groups. Uh, they they couldn't escape modernism though you know as a, yeah. as a as a way of thinking uh even in some of my own dissertation writing i've been i've been playing with this idea of horizons and horizontal shifts where right you know, i like it people is they, they have a horizon that says here is our way here's our thinking and yet mm-hmm. they can't help what the next generation is going to take from their horizon and how it's going to shift from there and, and and that to me is kind of the the interesting dynamic that we see at play here so that's that's great that you point that out. And like you said, humility, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. What is it? How does it make us think about our own arguments and disagreements, right? Even in our own time. Absolutely. Another, that, another great thing that stood out. Uh, one of your chapters was on muscular Adventism, and I and I found this one especially <laughs> interesting. Um, honestly, I think that's my favorite chapter to write, Craig. <laughs> it was it was a great chapter, and it really tapped into I felt the wider American obsession with quite a few, you know, uh, just masculine figures in the public mind. You know, you got uh, Roosevelt, you got Dwight Moody and the and just even like guys like Billy Sunday, you know, they're they're perpetuating this really strong sense of masculine Christianity that's ready to take up the banner and fight the good fight. Uh, uh, The human dynamo was one of the other things you mentioned there. And I found that (laughs) fascinating because what what in your mind do you think was was driving uh, some of this new emphasis on stand up and and be the man and fight for the cross? I mean, it almost had a a, a crusader feel to it in my mind. You know, I, I I can't help but go back to some of that earlier earlier Christian church history, but it, it felt similar. How do you think, and why do you think it kind of came up like this in this time? Well, I you know, 
again, I think people are products of their culture and time and place and all of those kinds of things. For me, what really opened my eyes was a couple of friends, uh, church historians that had recommended a new book that had not even been released yet. Uh, Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Dumay. I think Alicia Kaufman, who teaches at Baylor University, and there was a couple others that they said, hey, this is going to be a really significant book. So I think I was um, possibly the first or one of the very first in the Adventist community to both read that book and engage its ideas and promote it. And Mm -hmm. as I read Jesus and John Wayne, most of the book is focused on the 40s, 50s, 60s onward. Uh, But she has some introductory materials that are on Teddy Roosevelt and this muscular Christian movement that really begins in the early 20th century. So this and and Teddy Roosevelt was not a very religious person, but he used religion to his own purposes. And I think this is the same kind of thing. And so he's fusing um, ideas and especially here's this guy that that. Uh, the Rough Riders and everything else, trying to this bravado and everything else of the early 20th century. And and he starts popularizing this, and he and others, but it wasn't just him, but he was, as the president of the United States, uh, you know, just really this bravado and, and religion and, and fusing these things together. Um, and so what was really amazing is I'm writing this book in the 20s, Uh, and researching this at that same time. And I begin reading in the review and in science and in youth instructor, all this same kind of rhetoric. And so there was clearly, again, back to Adventists being products of their time. And for me, I think the real tipping point was when I read this one article that I cite in there that talks about the ideal Adventist young man. And, 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 in a role model. And I thought, well, Luther or maybe James White. And, and then in the review, it says that the ideal young man should be like Teddy Roosevelt. If we had more Adventist mm. young men like Teddy Roosevelt, then Jesus <laughs> would come. That mm. was kind of like this linchpin that said, oh my goodness, we were teaching muscular Christianity within Adventism. So I, I came up with the term muscular Adventism because, again, this is fusion of the muscular Christianity Christianity movement with Adventism, hence the muscular Adventism. But, but uh, it, of course, not every Adventist believed this, but there's enough, there's enough, and it's strong and prevalent, prevalent enough that it's making a huge impact. And, and of course, I know that, you know, there's these eclipsing of women from leadership and ministry and Adventism. So there are very real and tangible results. I had a, a very good friend of mine who's, who's doing a uh, doctorate um, over, um, over in England right now. And he read that chapter and then looked up my original sources. And he said, Timmy sent me a message and said, Michael, you were too kind. You were, you were really, <laughs> you're laying it a little bit soft there on us because when he looked up the original sources that I cite in that chapter, he said, it's, it's actually much stronger and, and um, more, you know, it was kind of this, this very blatant uh, wake up call that, Hey, uh, this was, this was really a thing that impacted Adventism. And yeah. I was being very, very kind and generous <laughs> in, in how I was using my sources. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
yeah. So, so there well, you have it. <laughs> I, I, I think that's uh, what you said here is fascinating. Two, two things specifically. If we're like Teddy Roosevelt, if our young men were like Roosevelt, Jesus would come. Fascinating yeah. connection there. I didn't even see that in my head. But yeah. the idea that there's something we're doing that is keeping Jesus from coming back, we have to be that that notion flows through Adventism in various stages. Yeah, uh, it's just fascinating to see that connected to Roosevelt here. The other thing you mentioned, though, is that women's role in the church took a nosedive around this time in history. Um, yeah. And in and in the chapter, you you highlighted things like the uh, the the women's right to vote. Um, the politics and all the policies that changed around the same time and the fears uh, of gender roles in many of these conservative Christian groups really mm -hmm. kind of drove this pushback against it. Um, but but what that what that highlights and tells me here is that even the things we argue about today and in, in terms of women's ordination and other things have a root in this this shift during fundamentalist times. I mean, is that what you're saying? Well, absolutely. There's there's a clear uh, title shift and Adventism is never the same afterwards. And I've had people say, well, you know, what if only at 1919 they had done more uh, to promote and teach? I'm, I'm not sure that if they'd even published the transcripts that it would have made much of a difference. There's a, a title shift in thinking and culture that is so strong and so overwhelming. I'm not sure that it would have made a difference. Of course, the what ifs of history, we, we don't know, but we sure. do see the tectonic plates moving in terms of race and gender. Now, I talk more about gender than I do of race in 1922, but I think in my as my 1925, the end the the third volume of this trilogy is going to talk more about race specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and I did talk a little bit about it in a separate piece that I published uh, in some of my research that I presented at the American Society of Church History about Adventists and the Ku Klux Klan, and that came out as a separate standalone piece in Spectrum. So uh, I think, you know, we're, we're seeing just how much, you know, how, how did we ever get to the point where there were Adventists, even church leaders, who were supportive of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s? Yeah. That, yeah. that to me is rather shocking, but again, yeah. there's historical evidence, and and the thing is, as a historian, we don't write the history that we wish we could write. We have to write the history that we've received that actually exists and that we can yeah. historically document. And so that's what I've tried to do is be faithful as a historian to honestly describe and contextualize that history. And the, mm -hmm. that means the good, but also the bad and the yeah. good we celebrate and the challenging moments i hope are instructive that we can learn from yeah i mean that that sums up so much of the historian's necessity in church life uh, mm -hmm. to forget to forget the good is is bad you know we shouldn't forget the good but to forget the bad is also bad yeah um, it, it it could help us understand where we're at today with so many of the issues our church faces uh to realize where these issues really came from and who else was talking about it and, well, come, and why it, it has developed into our modern day controversies. Yeah. And, and just to kind of come back to the opening then, you know, of of how both the modernists and the fundamentalists were informed by modernist assumptions. But they're also trying to do the same thing. Right. They're trying to keep and maintain the relevancy of the church and the world around them. They're right. just approaching right. it from two very different opposite kinds of uh, methods or methodologies. And 
Um, you know, not all of fundamentalism is bad, right? So mm-hmm. there, there's aspects in which fundamentalism is trying to highlight the supernatural aspects of the Bible. The Bible is divinely inspired and that mm-hmm. has application for a life that the Bible is truly inspired by God. Um, that desire is not a bad desire. That's actually a good desire and one that I resonate with. Uh, and yeah, so, same. so we highlight the good, but we also have to highlight, um, the challenges. Right. And I, and I think, I think that as a historians, we've, we've got to keep both of these things in tension because it is hard. It's hard yeah. to, to write history with a fair and a balanced perspective and not also sound like the older parent shaking the finger at the church and going, we told you so, you know, like it's yeah. hard to, to live in that tension. Um, and, and there's people today that want to like take sides, like, you know, that right. are very polemical and that see themselves as the true purveyors of sort of a neo-fundamentalism or a neo-modernism. And mm-hmm. that bifurcation of everything being black and white, I think um, misses the nuance. And as if that's those are the only two options as if we have to be a modernist or a fundamentalist. And I would yeah. say, honestly, that both approaches are not very helpful to be, to be quite frank. No, they're, they're both extreme. They, they both lose out the better of each other, right? Yeah. Hey, I've got a couple more parts here that really stood out to me. And um, yeah. again, want to just get some clarification from the author on this. Um, <laughs> you're, your your chapter on weaponizing Ellen White, I found to be Ooh. fascinating. Um, that one yeah. stood out to me in the book specifically because it showcased not only our tendency towards proof texting, right? Yeah, you know, just exactly. this idea that we're gonna we're gonna drill down and we are going to find all of the texts that we can throw at any given topic and prove our position. Yeah, but we took that mindset and have now changed it over into even how we view and read Ellen White. Um, mm. interesting that this is the case coming right on the heels of 1919. Um, you know, we've got, this is only a three year jump. And if you look at the transcripts from 1919, it doesn't feel like that's the direction we were headed. Yeah. So what do you think happened? And why do you think we, we started to use her so much the same as we started using the Bible? Yeah. So back to, I think this militant defense of the faith is one of the, the key uh, marking points of, of fundamentalism. And you see as there are increasing proclivity or tendencies towards fundamentalism within Adventism, you see also some people on the most extreme forms of that, that, that are not only proof texting, but taking this sort of you know, uh, doubled down, you know, no, no holding back that, you know, we have to fight to defend the faith. And um, that militancy, which, you know, George Marsden and others have defined in the broader fundamentalist movement, you see that same sense of militancy. Now, part of it is a spillover, I think, of the cultural ethos of the era of World War One, that everything was being militarized. You're in this epic, war that you know this this great war that is transforming the world uh, as christian nations are fighting each other and killing each other in in ways and methods that are unprecedented in all of human history and so mm. that loss of life that sense of need to defend uh and preserve life uh is very much a part of that era and i it's it's not an accident 
that that same sense of militancy uh, spills over within Christian circles and within Adventist circles. So, yeah, you you have to. Well, how 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 do you deal with you know perceived threats? And one way to do that is to militantly fight against it. And uh, so yeah, that's that's there. You have Holmes and Washburn, probably the best known and most extreme of these militant individuals who are fighting to defend the faith. And they are very much um, this war of words, uh, mm-hmm. this muckraking campaign that demonizes any and all who disagree with them. And they, they take this, you know, inerrantist verbalist approach that exalts Ellen White's writings even above the Bible. So, yeah. you know, within her lifetime, it's Ellen White's writings are the lesser light to the greater light, which is scripture to Jesus and they basically have reversed this, that that Ellen White is the great criterion through which all else is evaluated. And some people say, you know, uh, criticize them and said, well, you're making Ellen White into a pope, an infallible pope. And they're like, no, we or divine divine commentary. right? Yeah, divine commentary. And they're like, no, she's far be- above and beyond that. And, and so <laughs> that. Yeah, wow. I mean, I, I, did they stop to think about the rhetoric that they were saying? You know, this kind of, but but yeah, this is this is what's happening, Greg, and and it has a profound impact because it it polarizes that kind of that rhetoric polarizes and 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 makes things much more extreme. And church leaders are are fighting and, and struggling and wrestling with that because they're finding themselves caught at the crossroads between this, this really strong, extreme kinds of rhetoric. And, and at the end of the book, I'm, I'm pointing to people like W.A. Spicer, who, who basically is a church administrator, but he's, he's kind of seeking a little bit more of a moderate way forward for Adventism. Uh, and, and so, and, and that's what I'm really kind of appealing to is that we don't have to be modernist or fundamentalist that let's look for these, um, third ways or maybe fourth mm-hmm. ways. I don't know, um, that <laughs> why, why only three ways, you know, but, but create the kinds of environments and conversations and a, a spirit of humility and dialogue that, that maybe there's other options that we can find constructive paths forward for the church, both back then and I would even suggest for for the church today. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think that's that appeal uh, is in so many ways is is super resonant with myself. Uh, I've always felt like more of the moderate in many things, theological and historical. Yeah. But but that also also feels like well, we can only fight two fronts because nobody ever seems to like the moderate viewpoint, <laughs> whether you're on one extreme or the other. Um, I. I love that you you point out uh, Wilcox there at the end because he 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 did have that that sense of moderation mm-hmm. uh, and it just it, it it felt like a small voice but it was it was an important voice especially you know with the Washburn and Holmes and uh, you know the other factions that are out there yeah last big last big question and I think this one's just more of the uh, uh, a sense of of your place within the the historiographic spectrum what do you hope nineteen twenty two uh, as a book, but also as perhaps part of the of the larger uh, triumph tri- trilogy that you're making, what do you hope it's going to do for the church in our own current discussions and and controversies that that uh, we're engaged in as a church? Yeah, so I I really hope, Greg, that it creates 
thoughtful moments to ponder the past. And, and the past is not the present. So I want to avoid the fallacy of presentism. I'm not here to try to, you know, the past is the same as today. It's, it's not. It's not. It's uh, the past and studying the past is far more complex and nuanced than that. But I do hope it gives us reason and, and, and moments to pause to, to reflect and say, you know, are those same kinds of issues? We still respond and struggle with change. As, as a church, as, as a society, we're dealing with, we have another war that's unfolding in the world around us, uh, these kinds of, so we, we deal with the same kinds of challenges. Um, I, I tried to explain, you know, some people are, have, have suggested, well, our early Adventist pioneers were fundamentalist, and, and I would say, no, you can't have a fundamentalist movement before there was fundamentalism, before there was a historical <laughs> movement. That doesn't mean that people haven't dealt with change over time in similar kinds of issues in similar kinds of ways. And so um, that is still very much a reality, Greg. And, and so I hope that instead of saying, hey, there's the modernism, the, the, the modernists and the fundamentalists, and the modernists are going to think I'm fundamentalist and the fundamentalists are going to think I'm modernist, right? <laughs> uh, right. And it, that's not a guarantee I'm a, a moderate either, but I am seeking for moderate moderation and for uh, new ways of conversation to create spaces in the middle between the extremes that that maybe there are ways of of understanding inspired writings and studying the Bible and and understanding Adventism that don't have to be quite so polarized. So I, I really hope 1922 creates space for constructive conversations within the church overall writ large that can help us to better both understand our history, but also um, in doing so in the historiographical tradition of our church that uh, will allow us to say, hey, um, how, how can we approach new issues in the church? And, and, and are those, you know, are, are, is a bifurcated, a black and white approach, is that always the best approach? Could there be third ways, third options, more, more, you know, space in the middle or uh, uh, other other methods and approaches that that could help us create um, spaces uh, for for conversation. So um, and I think closely related to that, and I've tried to highlight this um, is a sense of humility um, as we study the past, as we study our history, that uh, that that it gives us moments for pause to say, you know, um, I wonder if if maybe, um, you know, I, I may not be right about something. And so if if not, then then maybe my ways of thinking and approaching things, maybe that there's other ways of seeing things. And and it may not mean that I necessarily change my mind. But if we can see and understand better why other people are thinking the way they do, uh, that that also will give us a, a bits of moments for pause um, and, and, and creating those safe spaces and conversations through a sense of humility. So I, I hope 1922 helps us better understand our history in a more meaningful and historically accurate way and creating uh, constructive conversations and a sense of humility. So that's what I'm really hoping. I, whether it does that or not, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm a little bit proud of the fact that on Amazon, it was like um, the number one new release in the Seventh Day Adventist category. Not that that that's a huge category, but uh, for hey, twenty for twenty for twenty seven out of thirty days for the of the first month that it was out, 
So um, that encourages me that that people are reading and resonating with it. So hopefully yeah. that that continues. I hope so. I hope so. And I think I think your 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 reason for existence and bringing this book about is is a fantastic one. So thanks for clarifying that one. Well, hey, folks, um, we've had a good discussion here. If you have not had a chance yet to go off and buy the book 1922 by Michael Campbell, I highly recommend it, Um, not just because I'm biased and he's my co-host, but because, frankly, it's a seminal work. Nobody else is looking at this in quite the same way. So if you want to know and understand early 20th century Adventism and how it affects us today, go check out the book. It's been fantastic. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. Um, I know we co-host together, but it's fun to be able to to share some of our own research. And by the way, a little sneak preview. Uh, Greg's getting towards the end of his own doctoral studies. So in mm. a very soon episode, I hope we're going to be talking about some of his his research, too. So we'll uh, we'll have a little bit of fun together uh, because not only do we talk about other people's research, but we want to contribute to that conversation, too. Absolutely. And I can't wait to to finish that. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> All right. Well, Adventist Pilgrimage podcast listeners, thanks again. Hope you come back to us next month. We've got a lot of new stuff coming. Uh, the summer is not going to slow down. It's just going to get busier, actually. So thank you for joining us. Have a great week. And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. He does not take us out of this world if he does not want us to be contaminated.